be a little bit too long. And um, I just want to, you know, thank Graham for uh, starting a bit of a conversation here amongst us about Indigenous issues. It, it's this funny thing in Australian culture where I think because we, we've, got, we've got this thing about integrity, right? Like we don't want to be fake or phony. We don't want to seem like we're virtue signalling. That people of really good will, Christian people, when it comes to like a social justice issue, like, I mean, that that's not... Um, you know, encountering, knowing, respecting, loving our Indigenous neighbours is obviously more than a social justice issue. But that kind of issue, we can feel a little bit uncomfortable. It can feel a bit tokenistic. But the thing is, it's just tokenistic if it's tokenistic. If you actually start doing something about it, then it's not tokenistic anymore. And it, it's intimidating because we're starting from so far back. Even those of us who are engaged, we're starting from so far back in this country. It's just not part of the culture but go and find something out this week you know, check out those websites that Graham mentioned find something out you, if you don't know who uh, our local tribal groups are find that out that's something we're going to Kwandamuka country tomorrow some of you know that um, uh, I did my undergrad in literary studies and one of my heroes uh, as I was studying poetry was an indigenous woman called Kath Walker from Stradbroke Island. She's famous worldwide. Lots of people in Brisbane don't even know that um, she exists. So we might as a family go and find a bit more out about Kwandamuka culture while we're over there on the island. Um, I'm also just going to talk quickly about communion because um, we're doing communion today. And one of the other blessings about having Graham come in is he's brought his sort of fresh eyes in and it helps the rest of us to see um, things that we're doing that aren't very well explained sometimes. We're pretty intentional about how we do most things here at Cornerstone, but we're not always that great at communicating why we do things the way that we do them. And um, one of the things that uh, we're going to do today that's a little bit different is we're going to have three stations to try and um, deal with the traffic issue and, and make sure that we can all get the elements in the right kind of time frame. Um, but the other thing that uh, Graham kind of said, you know, do you, do you ever talk about why you use the one loaf at Cornerstone? And we probably haven't really talked about it. And I know that... Um, well, lots of people are, uh, are fine with grabbing a, a loaf that's been ripped into pieces. Um, some of us, uh, you know, we're, we're probably not used to sharing food that way or having other people handle our food and that kind of stuff. So can I just talk for two minutes about why we use the one loaf? Um, people talk about sort of four dimensions of what we do when we take communion. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different understandings about what's going on when we have this meal, but across the Christian tradition there's sort of four um, things that are acknowledged as going on when we share this meal. One is that we're looking back to the past and what Jesus did, you know, his body and blood. We're probably familiar with that dimension of it. Then, so there's like this past dimension. Then there's this present dimension. As we're taking the elements and, and, and receiving them and, and drinking and eating, 
something is happening. Um, we're at least thinking or we're entering into something to do with our personal salvation, right? The fact that Jesus' death and resurrection somehow makes peace for us as individuals with God. You're tracking with me so far? It's all kind of um, familiar to most of us. The other thing, and maybe I talk about this a little bit more than other people maybe in our movement, but I think it's really important, is the other thing that's happening in the present is we're identifying with the body of Christ, which is the one another's here, right? We're kind of saying, I'm a part of this thing that is about more than just me and God. It's me, God, and God's people. And then, uh, as we take communion today, I'll probably talk about the fourth dimension, which is looking to the future and anticipating this kind of, they call it an eschatological feast. Uh, it's like everything that we hope to come into, the, the banquet that is going to be laid out for God, by God, for his people, right? We're going, it's a party, basically. And, and that is maybe, I think that's the, the next kind of phase that we need to maybe focus on a little bit more, that there's this gift um, element going on. There's this party element, there's this feast element, there's this hope to what we do when we come together. Now, um, it's a little bit funny that we... Uh, take these symbols that are all about unity, about shared life, about identifying one with another, uh, and then we uh, give people individual crackers. Um, it sort of it, it sort of undoes the symbolism a little bit, or could. One of the tensions that we always have with uh, anything that's to do with unity, though, is the stricter you put boundaries around, say, a symbol that represents unity, the more divisive it actually becomes, ironically. So we're not so stuck up on the one life being the symbol of our unity, while that's really important, that we don't also want those of you who are a little bit freaked out that someone else might be touching their food to, to uh, get in with us, if, if that makes sense. So we've got the option here today, and we're going to try and do this. There's gluten-free if you've got an issue, um, like a kind of physiological uh, issue with the unity of the life. But also, you know, if you've got hygiene concerns or whatever, we totally get that. We are one. You know, we're, we're aiming at being one together. Um, and so the arrows are pointing, even if, we, even if you're taking a wafer. I actually went to a theological conference this week to hear one of my old profs um, who was a keynote speaker, and he's an Anglican, and he was talking about, because they use the wafer, the, the, the high Anglicans, the Anglo-Catholics, like the Catholics, so they have those little individual wafers, and he, he was talking about the, the conversations that go on in Anglicanism about communion, because the Anglo-Catholics take the wafers, and he said they can make a very good case um, that the wafers, are, theologically, are the actual body and blood of Christ. He's yet to be convinced that they can make a case that the wafers are actually bread. Um, and, and I'm theologically not... Uh, no, we don't have time. I could, I could make a case that the rice crackers are bread, but we're, I don't want to bore you with that. Um, so... Cool. Does that sort of make sense? I think we probably get around to writing that down somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, partake um, if you if you identify with us. 
If, you, if those four things that I talked about may, make sense, you're welcome to come to the meal with us after the service this morning. Um, uh, not long after Cheryl and, and I got married, we were in the United States in a... Um, Graham stole my water. In a little sort of satellite city, I guess you could call it, of Atlanta, Georgia. From your state. Wow, that's awesome, Karina. Um, And Georgia, as Karina might know, is full of, like, I mean particularly around the Atlanta area, there's all these satellite cities. So, like, we kind of have Ipswich. They seem to have 20 of them. And Sharon and I, um, we had a train connection to make in Atlanta. Atlanta is um, maybe one of the worst sort of designed cities that I've ever been to in terms of civics. It's a lot like Los Angeles. You know how um, it's like a driver's city. You get honked at if you walk on the side of the road. There's no footpath. Um, it's got those big multi-lane kind of freeways running in every direction. With those, Have you seen in the movies and stuff uh, in LA how they have those big overpass things that curl up into the sky? You're familiar with that image? Anyway, so we're on the way to the Amtrak station and time's kind of tight. So we're just following the GPS and um, the lady's telling us where to go. We go up one of those overpass things. We were probably about 20 metres in the air and halfway round when the lady says, you've now reached your destination. (laughs) And the traffic's flowing. There's nothing on either side but barriers. So we're like, oh, okay. well, we'll just keep driving and, you know, maybe she's made a mistake and she'll lead us there. So we get off the whatever that thing called, overpass, ring roady kind of thing. We, we go sort of back down to street level, ground level, driving around for another 10 minutes. And then we notice that she's leading us back onto the same thing. And we reach the same spot, hanging out there in the middle of the air. And she says, you have now reached your destination. We were like nearly late by then. And it was a little bit stressful. And I realised... It's underneath. It's underneath us. So, you know, the GPS system is working in two dimensions. I, I'm, if I'm not a sciencey kind of dude, I was a geography teacher, so I, I guess I should know this. But it's like, you know, the north, south, east, west plane. But it it doesn't account for altitude, I guess. And so it's just like dropping that pin. And the pins landing on the overpass when actually the train station's underneath it. We worked it out, and I don't know if anyone else has had something like that. We worked it out, we got there, we jumped on the the train, it was all good. Um, Which isn't really the point of my story. The point of my story is that um, as I read the psalm that we're going to have a look at this morning... Um, it occurred to me that in some circumstances, it's possible to sort of be in two places at once um, or to be getting conflicting information about where you are. It's possible to be um, somewhere where things um, don't look like they're going so well 
And maybe I'm beginning to talk about a sort of spiritual positioning system here rather than a global positioning system. It's possible to be somewhere where things don't look so good for you, but actually you might be exactly where it is that God wants you to be. So bear that in mind as we read through this psalm. I'm going to come back to this point at the end. Um, But that hopefully will serve as a little bit of direction as we go through what frankly is a pretty weird psalm. Uh, Graham made a crack about how interesting I'd be this morning. Uh, He's actually set me up to fail. Uh, Some of you might remember that a couple of weeks ago he preached from Psalm 133. I was actually rostered to preach that one and it's a beautiful psalm. And um, he said, no, I'm making a captain's call. I'm taking that one. Um, And so this uh, last couple of weeks when I've shown him the one that I now have, which is Psalm 123, you know what he said to me? He said, good luck with that one. And and laughed. Um, But it's all worked out in God's grace because he doesn't have the theological chops to handle this one anyway. So... um, Anyway, let's have a look at it because this is one of those psalms where it's like you, you kind of get partway through and you go, what, what's happening here? What, what's going on? A little bit like, uh, speaking of GPS, going into the tunnel system in Brisbane and the, the GPS doesn't work anymore and you come up in Mount Gravatt when you were trying to go to Woolloongabba. That's not a personal testimony. Maybe it is a personal testimony. Or... Uh, another example that I uh, could think about is have you ever sort of gone into a film without actually doing any research about it first and thinking that it's going to be a certain kind of movie and you get in there and you're like, whoa. Uh, Sharon and, and my eighth anniversary, uh, we sort of had a short window of time and just saw the poster, Brad Pitt, Sean Penn, period, sort of, you know, 1960s, beautiful women, probably a romantic comedy Four hours later, we stumbled out of Terence Malick's Tree of Life um, and uh, we took about three days to recover. Um, this psalm is kind of like that. So let's have a look at it. Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. So this is a psalm of ascent, a little bit like another psalm that I'd really like to preach from one day called Psalm 133, but enough about that, yeah. Um, And you might remember when Graham was talking about Psalm 133, he was talking about uh, the way that these psalms of ascent, there's 15 of them, uh, scholars tell us that they were probably sung by pilgrims on the way to a festival in Jerusalem. Uh, Or uh, another suggestion has been that the priests would actually um, recite them as they went up the stairs to serve in the temple because there was 15 stairs leading up and it was almost like there was a psalm of ascent. Sometimes they're called the psalms of the steps, a psalm for every step. So it's kind of vibing with that so far a a worshipful psalm a psalm that's focused on God a a psalm that's focused on uh, celebration coming together I lift up my eyes to you 
to you who sits enthroned in heaven. Cool. Psalm of Ascent works. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, maybe a little bit anachronistic as a, uh, as a, um, as a metaphor, slavery we're maybe not so comfortable with, but we kind of get it, it's contextual. As the eyes of a female slave, or is it getting a bit sexist here? I'm not sure. As, a, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, okay, we're focused on God here. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. Okay? Working so far sort of fits with the theme of a psalm of ascent. Here's where it starts to get weird, though. Till he shows us mercy. Okay, we're turning a bit of a corner. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the, ridicule from the arrogant or contempt from the proud. Well, that's edifying, isn't it? Um, I was actually asked to preach at another church um, tonight and they asked specifically for an encouraging message and I didn't want to write two sermons so I was kind of hoping that I could do this one twice and then when I looked at this I wasn't so sure. But let's dig in and see if it is what it seems. I lift up my eyes to you. Who sits enthroned in heaven. I think if we start to kind of have a go at working out what's going on here, it's not really too difficult. Um, There's something about a kind of normal posture of worship in this phrase. Uh, The the psalmist is is recognising his position, right? So to encounter God, to consider God, he has to look up. And what's more, um, he's mindful, or she's mindful, if, we, if we're kind of personalising it, of the fact that there is this realm beyond their understanding, beyond their conception, in which God is still enthroned. So as a human being, as a humble human being who wants to worship God, we can kind of say, okay, well, I, I recognise God, I'm down here, you're up there, you're great. But it goes beyond that. God is great in ways that we can't even understand. That's the the language of being enthroned in heaven. That's what it's getting at. And I think that sort of resonates with what Graham was saying even this morning about sort of making a choice to worship. If we're pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem to worship or priests who are going to serve in the temple, we're being intentional we're kind of going, okay, there's something that I need to do here. I need to recognise where I'm at and I need to recognise where God's at. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress. Like As, as uncomfortable or, or weird as slave kind of language would be, I think we get the picture, Right? There's a sort of intentionality, there's a a concern, there's a focus on the master in this passage that's inferred. 
um, a devotion, maybe that's a good word to think about. There's this sense of vocation uh, for a servant waiting, attentive to the hand, to the movements of the person whom they serve. We might be a little bit more comfortable with the uh, metaphor of um, a dog sitting by the barbecue or a butcher bird uh, at a picnic. I don't know, have you ever seen the way that animals can kind of zone in on a piece of food? But that's an impoverished metaphor, really, because there is this sense of of kind of human uh, vocation and intention. A, A slave or a servant is looking to serve. They're, They're making a conscious decision their whole kind of being in that moment is caught up in doing the right thing for the master so the picture works even today I think here's where it gets a little complicated so our eyes where the psalmist is saying we're like that 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 slave that maidservant in the way that we are looking at God, we're considering God, we're paying attention to God, we're like that slave or servant. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. And why it gets a bit complicated here is because it's not um, a completely selfless attention then, is it? You know, we kind of might like to think when we're really worshipping, it's not about us, it's about God. Um, but in this situation, it's not that clear cut. If the servant, the psalmist, is, is waiting on their master, on God, attentive to the movements of their hand, for mercy actually, waiting to see God be merciful. And it just goes in from here that's kind of like where the psalm turns have mercy on us Lord have mercy on us for we have endured no end of contempt we have endured no end of ridicule ridicule from the arrogant of contempt from the proud I did a bit of research into, you know, was there a specific situation behind this? Um, Was there something going on historically that we can kind of pinpoint um, that explains what's going on with this contempt language? Because contempt's a really strong word. It's used three times in this section. Um, And there really wasn't. They couldn't pin anything down in particular. But as I kind of considered it and engaged with the literature, what occurred to me is is that contempt is kind of like a low watermark when it comes to human relations, right? I don't know if you've ever felt that someone held you in contempt. Can anyone here actually say that they've felt contempt before? I'd be surprised, actually. Uh, But I have walked with people who've felt contempt. And maybe a way that we can relate to it would to be thinking of a situation where you feel misunderstood, right? If you're trying to do your best, you're trying to do the right thing, you might even be trying to help somebody and they totally miss your motivations. Has that ever happened for you? Someone's assumed that you've got the wrong intentions for them. Someone's assumed the worst 
of you. Isn't that a horrible feeling when, when someone um, just gets you wrong, misunderstands you, questions your motives? Maybe you felt something a bit akin to that um, as a parent. Maybe someone's inferred that the way that you're parenting your child leaves something to be desired. Have you ever, any, any parents in the room who could maybe say they've felt that before? Or uh, perhaps you've got a colleague um, and the way that they treat and interact with you makes you feel like they don't think you're doing a good job or you know, they maybe think you're not the right person for the job. Maybe you've got employees or people that work for you and you get the feeling that they think that you're not very good at what you're doing. Are you sort of tapping into the, the feeling that I'm talking about? Um, I think feeling as though someone has contempt for you is right down there and then there's kind of gradations of a, of a broken down relationship, of, of a feeling of not being trusted, of a feeling of not being valued by the people around us. It's a, it's a funny place to kind of end this psalm then, isn't it? This psalm that is supposed to be the song of, of worshipful hearts on the road to Jerusalem. A, a, a psalm that's supposed to be the song of priests going up to serve God and serve people. To kind of start with this big view of God. You know, to start with the superlatives. To sort of get... Um, you know, that worshipful posture and sense of perspective right and then to kind of fall from there, to, to be overwhelmed by the challenge of your personal circumstance. I wonder, you know, amongst the pilgrims as they walked to Jerusalem, what it was like uh, to suggest this one. Oh, well, yeah, we've done, we've done Psalm 133, we've done Psalm 96... And Bob, why don't we do Psalm 123? And everyone's like, oh gosh, Bob. It'd be kind of like putting Leonard Cohen on the jukebox at a party or something, wouldn't it? Why do you have to pick 123? What, what could possibly be redemptive about singing this song where we start out going, God, I just, you're awesome, you're up there. Oh, but. Geez, things are tough down here. Nobody likes me. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I mean, that, that is what you might notice. Tilly helps me a bit um, with the publications uh, for, for, this, um, for this sermon. And I was at a little bit of a loss what to call it. So we called it Lord Have Mercy, dot, 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 because it's completely unresolved. You're just like, God, you're great. You're awesome. I love you. I'm on the way to, uh, to a feast, to a party. I'm on the way to serve you in your temple. But geez, I've got some troubles. It doesn't move up from there. It doesn't sort of say, oh, well, God is merciful. Sometimes the Psalms do that. They sort of take you down to the trough and then you start to remember, hey, God's done this great stuff for me. Actually, God is always faithful. Actually, God comes through for me, but not Psalm 123. It just stops with hard times. And I'm supposed to be doing what? I'm supposed to be partying? I'm supposed to be um, celebrating everything that you've done for me? I'm supposed to be serving your people? And here I am. I can't get past 
what's going wrong in my life. The fact that people are, are thinking the worst of me. I actually think there, there's something to that. There obviously has to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't have stayed in the Bible, right? To, to finish with that dot, dot, dot. To kind of sit there a little bit. We're actually not very good with sitting there as Pentecostals. And we've talked about this a little bit before. We, we can have a tendency to what, towards what people call triumphalism. That, you know, we're always kind of focused on the good, the good uh, that God will do. You say someone's sick, well, be healed, you know. We, we have faith for your healing. Um, or, you know, someone might even just be pouring their heart out to us and we kind of feel like we've got to go to the well, you know, maybe read the Psalms. Uh, or, you know, I'm sure God has something great for you, brother. But surely you've been in a situation where that's kind of, it's felt a little bit hollow, right? Someone has sort of, has, has shared um, the fact that they're in the pit with you and, and you sort of feel like that reflex to kind of say, well, look on the bright side and then, you know, it, do, it, it feels, yeah, false. Or maybe you've been on the other end of that and you've had these glib sort of pat um, consolations directed at you. For me, I think there's actually something encouraging that this is in Scripture, that the priest could be, you know, walking those steps to serve and it's still there and that's okay. Or that, you know, you could be a pilgrim on the way to what should be the highlight of your year, maybe the highlight of your life. You're with your people, you're going to Jerusalem, maybe you've never been there before, you're going to see the temple. But it, there's, there's something going on. And it speaks to, I mean, really the title of the series that we're in, Honest to God. Um, there's something, I think, for us in here about just being honest, about being truthful about where we're really at. It is good to come into church and say, I will worship the Lord. But somehow, that's less remarkable if we just gloss over the problems that might stop us from getting there. What I see here, actually, is something for us to take about real relationship with God. I might be kind of covering uh, some ground that Graham touched on, um, but I think it's worth saying again, have you... I mean, this is relationship, actually. Honesty is so essential to real relationship. Have you ever um, known someone, or maybe you've recognised this dynamic in your, in your own heart, and they're just not who they are when you're with them? You know, they're either trying to sort of upsell themselves, they're, they're obviously in denial about um, something that's going 
on in their life, sadly, it, it often comes from our brokenness, right? We, as human beings, we crave, I think, acceptance. We, we, I mean, contempt is so difficult because we want to be loved. We want to be accepted. And when we don't get that, something's wrong with the universe. But if we've been hurt before, we can tend to go into relationships kind of looking for for that and actually the irony of it is is that we so often self, sort of self-sabotage doing that because if someone is not their self with you you can't really accept them right if someone's always got the mask on if someone's always trying to be their best self in front of you someone's always trying to convince you that they'd make a really good friend they're talented in this way they've got this going on there's like a barrier to real intimacy, to real relationships straight away. Has anyone come across that before? And, and so why it's so devastating is um, when we do that, the love that we need, we can never have. Because anything good that comes our way when we're operating that way isn't actually coming to us. The person isn't loving and accepting us necessarily. They're loving and accepting this image that we're putting up there. And I think, uh, I mean, we don't have time for it this morning, but there's some, there's some stuff going on there uh, for us in the age of social media, right? The kind of lives that we're trying to project, um, that, we're, we, that we have, I think we have to be so careful because if we want real relationship, we want real intimacy, we want real acceptance, we actually have to be who we are. And if it works that way for us one with another, of course it works that way with God as well. right? Of course he loves us, but he wants to be in relationship with you. With you, with your warts, you know, um, with what you look like first thing in the morning. Because you can't have a relationship with someone who's not being themselves. And so to live worshipfully actually means to be communicating honestly with God. And that's the gift that this psalm with its dot, dot, dot gives us. This is actually everybody is in that place sometimes. Don't deny it. There's no path to wholeness. There's no path to real relationship and to love in denying what's really going on in your circumstance, in your heart in your life. So there's the first sort of two practical application points that I think we can take out of this strange psalm. To be worshipful is to be real. To have a relationship with God is to be who you really are with God. To be honest with God. I mean, I think that's almost reason enough to read this psalm. But it actually gets better. <laughs> I got another point for you that came, came to me out of this weird psalm that should have ruined my week. Think about where you are, right? If there's any sense of, of resonance, of empathy, if you, if you know this feeling that the psalmist is putting forward in this, in this song... If you know this feeling of going, God, I, 
I have every intention of getting there. I, I do love you. But the dot, dot, dot. If you can sing that song, if you, if you could keep that in, in your songbook of 15 songs that you sing, um, think about where you are. If you're identifying with the psalmist here, think about where you are. You're either on the road to Jerusalem or on the steps up to the temple and you're having a real conversation with the living God. You're on the way to worship at the temple, which at best you might get to do once a year, or you're serving God's people in his temple, the living God has chosen you. What makes it better, though, is that you here, if you're in relationship with God, you're not walking to a city that can get knocked down. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a different thing to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem today because the temple's not there, but that doesn't matter to you. You're a pilgrim but you're on the way to an eternal city where God will dwell forever, right? Where God um, intends to live with you, where God intends for you to live in the fullness of his blessing. And um, you are a priest. You know, it's, there's not a class thing here happening. You can be a pilgrim and a priest, someone who has access to the Most High God, someone who is serving at the centre of his purposes, someone who is taking his will, his love to the world, who is a mediator between God and creation. And so can you see how it's possible actually to be in two places at once? You might have every instrument on your dashboard telling you you're going to hell in a handbasket. People might uh, be in a great throng around you questioning your integrity. They might not like you. You might not have a job. You might struggle uh, with, you know, finding uh, a life partner. Whatever can be going wrong in this life is only part of the picture. Because God has a dimension going on that you might not always be mindful of. You are on the way to serve the king at the eternal city. You have access to any part of the temple that you want. Nothing is off limits. So look at those instruments and go, this is just a part of the picture. Could I get the, the band up here because we're going to take communion um, this morning as I said and I'll also get uh, the ushers who are going to distribute the elements for for us so the dot 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 
If you're not there now, you'll be there at some point. But don't forget where you really are. Don't forget about the dimension that really matters. That vertical one. Don't forget that you can talk to God as honestly as you can talk to anyone. More honestly. There are things that you can say to God that you would fear to say to the people around you. And that's because God loves you. He wants to be in true relationship with you. You actually have no secrets from Him anyway, do you? I'm going to um, actually ask, I've set you guys up a bit, Renata, to, to play a song um, through the system for us as, we, as we, we make our pilgrimage this morning to come and receive the elements. It's just a taste of the party that's waiting. And all that you have to do this morning is to come mindful of that perspective (laughs) Um, that God is with you. He wants to relate to you. He wants to be your friend. He wants to spend eternity with you in that everlasting city. Thanks, Renata. Why don't you come up and receive the elements as we listen to this? Copyright and may be used for permission. For further information about Cornerstone.